Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Brad Grywe, who's the co-founder and managing partner of Fifth Wall, which is the largest venture capital fund focused on the global real estate industry and property technology for the built environment. Two terms that we all in the real estate world have on our minds these days are prop tech and disruptors, and we've explored these deeply in Leading Voices. Examples have been the conversations with Clara Brenner, who co-heads the Urban Innovation Fund, a VC fund similar to Fifth Wall, and then a long list of recent disruptors, interviews with Jamie Hodari, the CEO of Industrious, one of the leading non-WeWork players in the co-working space. The co-heads of Lyric and also Chip Connolly, then of Airbnb, each talking about disrupting the hospitality business and telling the story of single-family rental via invitation homes and waypoint homes from Fred Tuami and Colin Wheel. But it's interesting, as I think through the stories we've heard through the 60-some-odd episodes of Leading Voices, one filter could be finding the disruption in each of the guest stories and their company creation stories, from the story of Sam Zell and the creation of his companies, particularly in the public environment, to Gerald Hines, Art Gensler, Bill Stein at Digital Realty in the data center space, Ken Woolley at Extra Space and Self Storage, and Ron Tewilliger in Apartment Development. Most of the conversations have been with leaders disrupting and creating business, sometimes in a totally new space or sometimes a mature space, but to grow a business with a new approach. The conversation with Brad was eye-opening. Here's what you're going to hear. First, in his late 20s, Brad was one of the innovators behind the creation of the single-family rental business and Blackstone's entering the space. How did he have the guts and gravitas as a very young man to step out of a corporate environment, I think then at Starwood, to do a startup? Second, his investors in the billion-dollar VC fund are about half strategic investors from the real estate industry and about half outside investors. That's an interesting twist on the idea of a VC fund, which Brad will explore deeply in the conversation. And third, related is that with his strategic investors, Fifth Wall is also consulting on how to get ahead of the curve in terms of technology and innovation to drive better, more sustainable performance in an industry that's slow to adopt technologies and innovations. Lots to hear and think about in this conversation. I hope that you've been enjoying the conversations on Leading Voices. As you know, the last episode with Paul Smithers, the CEO of Innovative Industrial Properties, the Cannabis REIT, And the next episode will be with David Brickman, the CEO of Freddie Mac. As I've said, particularly after the episode with Paul Smithers, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, please pass it around to your friends and colleagues and rate us on iTunes. Check out the podcast website at leadingvoicespodcast.com and my firm's website at terrasearchpartners.com. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, feel free to email me at my day job at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Brad. So Brad, what's really interesting starting today is we're interviewing here in an industrious space. Yes. You're an investor in industrious. My interview with Jamie Hadari was released a few days ago talking about industrious. I got to listen to that podcast. Is it, uh, was it up yet? It was up on Monday. I'll, oh, perfect, I'll send yeah. you a link to it. He's my CEO poet. Like every time we yeah, think, right. he talks, he's like Chaucer. It's like, yeah, he's very thoughtful. 
And today my company moved into industrial space. So as we get into this, what is fifth wall? What do you do? Just kind of give us the big picture and then we can drill down about what the business is. Sure. So fifth wall is the largest venture capital fund focused exclusively on built world technologies. I say built world to be a little bit more expansive in our definition. A lot of people refer to it as prop tech or real estate tech. We feel that's actually pretty limiting because what we're really attempting to do is not only challenge our RLPs, but the broader real estate industry to think about real estate differently and outside sort of the typical four-wall economics that have persisted in our industry for quite some time. It's actually the reason why we named ourselves the fifth wall, talking about this next digital layer, or at least the idea that your space is interacted with in really unique and interesting ways in all shapes and sizes by a whole host of different factors. So really thinking about this built world concept and positioning your organization to think through the innovations that that might lead to and giving our LPs the ability to invest and take advantage of it. So we raised a little over a billion dollars of AUM to date to help execute on that strategy. What makes us unique is that we partner with and accept investment from some of the largest real estate owner, operator, developers, and investors from across the globe. Uh, I think we have over 50 corporate LPs in 11 countries. And what percentage of your investors are in the built world business versus just general investors? Sure. It's about, I'd say at this point, more of a 60-40 mix, 60 percent strategic, 40 percent financial. Uh We think it's really important to marry the strategic and the financial because both constituents have, you know, I think unique knowledge to bring to the table and can provide a firm like ours a lot of benefits. So making sure we didn't over-index on strategic investment was important. And, you know, introducing the financial community to this new idea of what a venture firm could and should be as it relates to focusing specifically on one industry vertical and building just a different model with which to execute on it. Yeah, and talk about, I don't know anything about the venture capital world, but I'll use the word thematic venture capital. But what does it mean to be a thematic venture capital investor versus broad? Mm -hmm. And does it take away some of the risk we can get into it, but I'm curious. Sure. So what it means is that we're essentially purpose-building an organization to solve all the needs of investing in sort of the built world and for the real estate industry to move up the adoption curve right. as it relates to technology adoption, which unfortunately the real estate industry has been woefully behind. You know, I think there's a few industry stats out there, but I think in real estate in particular, spends about a little less than 1% of industry revenue on R&D, while most mature industries spend anywhere from 3 to 8%. <laughs> so there is a significant need for technology and R&D investment in our industry, uh, you're starting to see some real movement on that side, especially by a lot of the LPs that, that we have in our fund. And we wanted to obviously ride that wave. But uh, in order to do so, we, we not only had to sort of purpose build ourselves to programmatically identify, underwrite, diligence, and invest in early stage technology companies that were influencing the built world, but also pair that with advisory capabilities to work with our corporate LPs to help them build the muscle to engage in the technology ecosystem in ways that they just haven't done in the past. So giving them the opportunity to think through building their own internal innovation capabilities, facilitating change and transformation efforts, and in some instances globally, changing the culture and the hiring process to attract a different type of employee who understands and is engaged in the space before. So it's really working pretty collaboratively to help our LPs in the broader industry in general just be better prepared to combat disruption, but more importantly, uh, take advantage of the dearth of opportunity that technology brings to the table. Right. And is there some risk mitigation because it's all one industry and your investors are in the industry? It might seem 
that there's less of a downside. Even if a company fails, you got something out of it because the whole industry learned from sure. that failure. Yeah. So you may have better performance as a VC because there's less under zeros. I'm making that up. No, I mean, listen, I think there's sort of pros and cons of thinking about venture investing in the traditional sense. You know, there's really only been two ways to do it historically. You either do it as a generalist VC or you do it as a corporate VC. Both have, have benefits, but the problem is, is that I think by separating those two sort of strategic needs, they're bifurcated. One is only focused on financial return. The other is really, of course, financial return is important, but the strategic value of some of these technologies in many instances is a lot more valuable than the financial return of the actual investment in the company that might be perpetrating that innovation. So Mm -hmm. what we're really uniquely positioned to do is sit on the fence between strategic and financial return and help our LPs, both financial and strategic, realize both. Mm -hmm. It's a tough position to be in because sometimes it puts you in a position to disagree with your LPs or challenge them. But I think that's necessary because I think corporate VCs historically have failed because they've created a whole host of perverse incentives around structuring deals in non-market ways, supporting companies that might not have otherwise survived, but might take a non-market deal to continue to, to receive funding through a corporate. So there's a lot of improvements that can be made on the model. And, and Fifth Wall has been working really hard to programmatically put together that, that more perfect mix to achieve both. The way we met about a year ago was you were on a panel and John Helm, who does this, but even more focused on just the multifamily sector and his investors maybe are all from that sector versus you're across the board in real estate. Yeah. Why we did that is is actually a pretty important point, And I'm glad you brought it up. So focusing on one specific industry within a specific industry, yes, you can generate a lot of interesting insight uh, and unique perspective. But the interesting thing about real estate, at least in, in my mind, is that Owners of real estate actually don't own real estate anymore. They just own space. And it's really up to them to think through how they articulate that space flexibly, more efficiently, dynamically to meet consumer demand that is changing by the day, seemingly. So you need to have not only the real estate portfolio, but the data and the operational capabilities to render that space to meet those changing consumer demands. So whether you own multifamily office, hospitality, industrial, you're faced with the same challenges. And what we like about our model is that each industry is approaching it differently, and the learnings from that can be shared. Most of these organizations, and if you look at our website, are actually competitive in many instances. But why they joined the fifth, this fifth wall consortium is to share insights and to actually participate in a conversation around innovation outside the traditional norms of we're wildly competitive. And keep in mind, they still are and, and very much compete on the real estate side. But in order for a lot of this innovation to take flight and ultimately to influence and change industries, in many instances, you actually have to work with your competitors to make that a reality. Actually, early on, like 15 years ago, there was an industry effort. I think the big REITs got together and formed Octane. I don't know if you remember that or knew about that. So they did. They realized, hey, if we're not together on the subject technology, we all can't reinvent the wheel. Yes. So and I think there was another. There were two. There was another VC fund called Constellation yes. that, that formed right before the downturn. So. I'd like to say fifth wall is a novel idea, but uh, these types of things have been tried in the past. But I think what was missing from them is, is potentially, again, not just focusing on one industry, but focusing on the entire ecosystem. And I think obviously a lot's changed since you know the late 90s, early mm-hmm. 2000s, in that many of these trends aren't going away. And you know, with 
your mobile phone and what consumer expectations are in terms of how they interact with technology in their daily lives. They're not going to be satisfied if they're not getting that at work or they're not getting that in hospitality experience, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that sea change has occurred and now the impetus is on, you know, sort of the, the real estate ecosystem to respond accordingly and potentially in many instances do it together. Right. And one of the changes that's occurred is the kind of this hospitality approach across the board in real estate and it's engaged in multifamily, it's engaged in office. The we work in the industrious co-working phenomenon kind of cuts across the board to bring that type of perspective. So actually, if you're siloed per real estate sector, it doesn't allow that cross-fertilization that's part of your business. Yeah, and listen, I think you're even seeing it as, as far as industrial as well, which, you know, considering the tailwinds they've experienced the last decade, the impetus to innovate is, is really not there because they've just been making money hand over fist riding sort of the e-commerce wave. But I think the really innovative ones, and I'd put GLP and Prologis and Seagro in the UK in that mix, are really thinking through removing themselves from the confines of like a traditional triple net lease and starting to think through how can we service our customers in ways that we haven't done in the past? Or how can we better understand the trillions of dollars of GDP that flow through our warehousing facilities and, and start to render that data available to us and to our customers? Those are big challenges, but big opportunities when you think about uh, right. what their real estate footprint allows them to light up in terms of tech-enabled opportunities. And every real estate asset class has that opportunity today. It was interesting because I was at a, another conference and I asked Hamid Mogadam from Prologis a question, which was how can people compete with you given your size and scale that lets you work the business from a technological and relationship standpoint that scale really benefits from and the sophistication around it because it's not just leasing space. It is enabling synergies and efficiencies in a business that they can facilitate, not just, again, by their space, but by the way they approach it. Yeah. I think companies like Prologis and others that have significant scale, if they can start to render some of these technology advantages, that scale becomes really, really hard to compete with, even more so today. And I think it actually creates a pretty interesting dichotomy as it relates to how you think about, you know, sort of real estate asset allocation in the future as it relates to, you know, a lot of allocators have relied on on the ground, local market expertise, you know, sort of local real estate owner operators. The competitive advantages of being local are starting to dissipate as, as data and capital becomes more ubiquitous. And those smaller suboptimized organizations don't have the balance sheets to invest in technology innovation. So when they have to compete with a more scaled player like a Blackstone or a Brookfield, they're going to be competing on a whole host of other fronts they've never had to compete on before and are going to be potentially underprepared to do so. So I think while that obviously presents a unique opportunity for the scaled players, I think it also presents a pretty compelling opportunity for the technology ecosystem and sort of the middle market real estate players to think through larger marketplace technology plays that can bring scaled technology solutions and allow um, you know smaller players to sort of instantly and seamlessly plug into technology plays that allow them to scale their operations and do, do things they normally wouldn't have. Actually, it didn't exist before. So now yeah. the transparency of information and those kind of technologies allow a small player access to 80% of what the other guys get. Yeah. And, but they have to be willing, they have to be able, and they have to have the internal resources and capabilities to actually take advantage of it. Uh -huh. And many aren't really prepared for that. So you talked early in the conversation about your consulting work with your clients, and this will be across the board in real estate, not just your clients, but you said they have to change how they think in the organization. Is that the chief technology officer thinking differently or is that everybody and how the do you influence? The entire executive team. 
And that flows through to the rest of the organization. And again, you know, different industries are at different stages of the, of the innovation cycle. And there are certain industries that there's, I'd say, more of an innovation imperative. And I think retail, for example, seems to be under more existential threat. Right. Uh, we really view that actually more as an opportunity and a threat considering how some of the evolution in retail is actually providing real estate owners really interesting opportunities. But sitting on the sidelines or putting your head in the sand is no longer a strategy. Whatever asset class, however far or far behind you are, spending the time, energy, and resources to determine what your future business strategy is as it relates to technology and innovation adoption is going to be crucial for any organization, whether in real estate or otherwise. And that's not an easy thing in an industry that, again, has been significantly under-indexed and under-resourced, understaffed, and under-capitalized on technology for the past 30 years. Uh So I imagine this thing, and I'm going to guess that you might do this. I have no idea. And then you could do it for us or put a pin in it and do it later in the conversation. But I guess maybe you go into the boardroom of a major company and you get the executive team together and you could pitch them, you could talk to them, or you could blow their minds. And I bet if you blow their minds, then they get the, the reason that they have to do this, not sure. from a pitch. It's a little bit of both. Because again, blowing their minds or talking about where the world's going to go is cool and people are excited about it. But at the same time, it's Guys, make this real. Make it real for make me. It real for Blow me my mind. Now bring yeah. it down home show me, to this. Show me how I can take this technology that you're talking about and how I can implement it. And again, what I think makes our firm unique, and more specifically, I think Brennan and I, who founded the fund, our experience and skill set unique is that we've cut our teeth in real estate. Like right. Our career started in the real estate industry, but we also had the advantages of building technology organizations. Uh-huh. Uh, me at a large real estate org, uh, Brennan more at, at a sort of traditional startup. And when you can come to the table at these board meetings or executive uh, conversations and really pay the proper respect and homage to what it means to operate a large-scale real estate organization, that goes a long way. Because again, and you've seen this with some of the issues with WeWork and and others, like a lot of this innovation isn't technology. It's tech-enabled for sure, but it's enabled through better operations, better workflows, better communication. Technology can definitely help accelerate, but it's not Uh the only ingredient to innovation. And so coming up with a plan and a thoughtful way to execute on it, marrying those two things is really, I think, the secret sauce of kind of how you push these types of conversations forward at these traditional real estate firms. I mean, any conversation today about real estate and particularly about innovation in real estate winds up being WeWork. And is WeWork does co-working equal we work? I know it doesn't because of industrious, but I'll ask that question. And then is it a flash in the pan? And how do you know the difference between a long-term trend and a flash in the pan? In real estate, quality oftentimes trumps quantity. But again, I think it's a real opportunity for the incumbent landlords to help uh-huh. I mean, we were controlled, what, anywhere between 40 and 50 million square feet. I think Heinz has 250 million square feet, and that's just one player. And Heinz has already partnered with Industrious to Convene, and they've branded their own flexible workspace in Heinz Squared, and they're starting to articulate that strategy. So I think the landlords that are taking a more offensive approach are going to be much better suited to take advantage, and but also combat the risk associated with flex space, because it's not all good in the sense that what flexible space represents is a rearticulation of office. And in a lot of instances, if left unchecked, I think will result in tenants asking for less space, not more. So what does that mean for an office landlord? It means you need to think through what kind of space you have, how is it being articulated, what's the utilization, how can that be maximized, how mm-hmm. can you make employees more productive, happier, and how you can provide those services to your tenants so that they not only ask for the same space, but in many instances more, despite the fact that there's more information 
at their fingertips to think through what does it mean to articulate office space. So while there's risks associated with this, I think especially for office landlords being on the offensive and really coming up with thoughtful ways to service their tenants and ultimately now their customers in ways they haven't done before, I think those who do that and do it well are going to be really well suited to be leaders of office space in the future. Makes total sense. It's interesting because when we were going to redo our lease, we went to our landlords. We had a five-year lease. I owned $150,000 worth of furniture, which actually means something in a small business. Went to landlord and said, okay, what can you offer me that's flexible because I don't want to have a long-term lease and I want optionality about the rest of it. And they said, well, we'll we'll go to a three-year lease in a different space and we'll still put a wooden door between you and the rest of the world. And they had zero interest or zero ability to be flexible in response to my need for optionality. And for a small business, that was a risk I didn't want to take anymore. Although now I'm all in with co-working because I got rid of all that furniture and I'm not going to make that investment again. So if I never make that investment again, then I'm for the rest of my life or the company winds up being in some form of co-working. Yeah. And I think the landlords that figure out how to service you in, in your early days and as your business scales and grows, why would you ever leave that ecosystem? Because you have brand affinity, you are a sticky customer, and you're going to want to stay with them throughout the life cycle of your business. And that, to me, has sort of been, I think, a missed opportunity in not just office, but almost every uh, asset class in terms of monetizing your tenant at the lease. It's an interesting and, and good business model, but it can be better if you figure out ways to build a brand and associate with that so that they're coming to you for all their needs. And I think that expands your ability to monetize them well beyond the lease negotiation. Right. Okay. So we were going to put a pin into the Brad story. So kind of where did you grow up and school? Just talk about that a little bit and then how you entered a real estate career. Sure. So I grew up in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. My family on, on my dad's side has been there for quite some time. I have a twin brother, actually, uh, identical, and a younger sister. And uh, yeah, growing up in Cincinnati was amazing. I grew up in a real estate family. Both my dad and my two uncles uh, were in the real estate business for the majority of their careers. What did they do? So my dad is a condo developer. My uncle owns a large real estate developer acquirer uh, in sort of the southeast, Midwest. And then my other uncle owns a large developer acquirer here in in the Bay Area. Uh So lots of real estate in our blood and lots of exposure early on. So I'd say I was definitely influenced by all three as it related to where, when I was thinking about my career, where I wanted to start. But before I got there, I was at Harvard. I actually got recruited to play football there. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Uh who's now quarterback for the Dolphins, was my quarterback. So pretty unique athletic experience at a school like Harvard. What was your position? I was a wide receiver, so made for catching footballs a lot more interesting. And while I was there, I unfortunately ignored the major technology trend that was occurring at the time as Mark Zuckerberg was building Facebook at the time. Most of my friends went to go work for him, and now they all live on yachts. And I decided to go into investment banking because that's where all the money was. Uh, (laughs) So that was my first poor entrepreneur decision. And uh, were you classmates? So was this happening right then? Yeah, just to put it in Facebook place time? launched when I was at school. So it was fun to see it kind of be birthed as, as initially like a way for Harvard students and then Ivy League and then more colleges to, to sort of communicate with each other, uh-huh. uh, but then obviously grow into the behemoth it is today. So I left Harvard. I went to investment banking. Hey, let me ask one question. Sure. It's just, I'm curious about this. How do you as a young person manage the expectations of being a person at Harvard? Because you and your classmates expect great things of yourself, demand great things of yourself by being at that school. Same at Yale, you know, a couple of other places. And the rest of us are normal people. (laughs) But how do you 
managed at a young age that you're probably something's different there? You know what? It was more along. I think because I didn't have any expectations because nobody in my family had ever gone there before. I just right. went there thinking this. Is, I knew I was never going to play in the NFL, but I knew I was good enough to leverage football to get me into the best academic school possible. So uh-huh. that was really my mission. Good move. So getting a chance to go there to me was really like winning the lottery. So it was all gravy from there. Uh, and really, when you show up there, yes. There's plenty of expectations, but I didn't really get that from my family. or So there's no, really no pressure. It was like uh-huh. you go do your best and have fun. But the great thing that happens when you're there is you're surrounded, to your point, like by just so many amazing people who are doing and have done and are doing so many amazing things. So it's hard not to get kind of swept up in that sort of motivating and sort of inspiring ecosystem. So really, I think it just set the table for me was that hey, this is about learning. It's about exposing yourselves to new ideas and new people. And it's about challenging yourselves in ways that you didn't think possible. And, and so I think that ethos stuck with me. And partially, I think, why I ultimately became an entrepreneur later in my life. But I knew early on that I didn't have, I think, the skill set to be an entrepreneur right out of school. I, didn't, I wasn't like a master coder. And I knew I loved real estate, but I knew I needed to build a foundation first before I started to do things on my own. Yeah, so lesson for our listeners and for everyone, there are people, and I think technology is the place where it happens, where people have the hubris or confidence or something, okay, I'm going to just start something. Sure. But most people go get training and learn a business and get grounding in a space. Yeah. That- I teach at a lot of schools and a lot of both undergrad and, and business. And everybody wants to be a CEO, but not a lot of people want to be a CEO for the right reasons. Everybody assumes that it's... And I think, again, the media is like kind of glamorized. The, so the whole idea of what it means to be a CEO, it's not glamorous. It's hard work. Yeah. And if you think that you're getting in this so you can like hire people and boss people around and like kind of float above if your hands aren't dirty you're not doing your job in the sense that like you know i've started two companies but i'm still in the muck like and you have to be because like that's what it takes to build a great company and you need to be there because you need to understand the pulse of your organization and take advantage of the opportunities as they arise and so i think there's a lot of reasons to start a company but the number one reason to start one is that you see a significant amount of opportunity to build a real business, not something that you're passionate about. And I, I get all that stuff and you should be passionate. But again, right. like this is about building a profitable organization that can make you and the employees that you hire money and your investors. So finding an idea that can do that is the most important thing. It's kind of like you, you kind of do what I do for a living because as a recruiter, I'm trying to decide if people are worthy of this particular job. In your case, you're trying to decide if people and their ideas worthy of this investment. So you see lots of opportunity versus running a company and moving it forward the best way you can. Yeah. It's the breadth of what you get to do. Yeah. And again, I think the real opportunity around, and I think Steve Case does a great job in his book, The Third Wave, talking mm-hmm. about what is sort of this next wave of innovation really mean? And this next wave, in his eyes, is sort of this convergence of, you know, really the thesis of fifth wall, sort of the built environment and technology colliding and colliding at scale. And it's sort of like something that we pitch to our LPs is that, especially in real estate, and I think this is true in all major, you know, industry categories that are more mature, whether they be real estate, infrastructure, oil and gas, agriculture, innovation is not going to happen And the great thing about real estate is that the industry is well-defined and the foundation is solid and it's massive. It's the biggest industry on earth. Again, it's very attractive to scale and and most general VC investments require that. But again, usually those are software companies and those are usually winner take all. In real estate, Imitation Homes is a great example and we we can get into that a little later. We're the largest owner of single family rental homes in the country and we still represent less than 1% of all stock. So there could be 
20 of us at the same value, which right now is trading at $16 billion market cap, and there's still enough room to accommodate it. So it's not just the scale is important because you want to you know, build a brand and build enough scale to make your operations efficient, but you have to do it responsibly. And if you do, you can build a real business right. that has real legs. And the embedded capital structure of real, I mean, it's just yeah, the it's investment is trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars across every, every asset class. So, okay, back to you. So you graduate, you said you went into investment banking. Was it investment UBS, banking? Yeah. So UBS in real estate or real no? Real estate and lodging. Worked for Jackson Shea. Did a, you know, this is sort of the heyday of sort of LBOs. I worked on the Hilton deal. What year is this? So where this are like we? like 2005, 2006. Okay, um, so long ago. I'm, I'm yeah, teasing. A little okay. while ago. So got my taste of the banking industry, how capital markets work, and how companies kind of evaluate themselves. And this was at the time where, you know, values were extremely high. So it was, I think, a good learning opportunity of not only sort of what works, but more importantly, as the market turned, what doesn't. So uh, I left UBS before the market turned. I went to go work at Tish Spire, which is a large real estate developer acquirer. I was in the acquisitions department there. So saw, you know, sort of the, the market turn and got to be a part of thinking through, you know, how do you work out investments that you might have purchased at the top, but also how to invest in sort of the distress. Of and the is that, world. so that's 06, 07, 08? Yeah, that was like 07 to 08. And then I left Tishman to go work for Barry Sternlich at Starwood Capital. Uh-huh. And Tishman, you say you got to see some acquisitions and then how it turned in a tough way. Yes. Were you involved with Archstone? They bought Archstone and Stytown. They did two big ones at the same time. Yeah, right before I joined, they did those. So I got to see what it looked like to, hey, maybe we overpaid. How do we work these things out? Um, You know, some worked, some didn't. And then also, like, how do you build an organization that can survive that type of situation and actually come out stronger? Uh, and Tishman obviously is you know stronger than ever because of sort of the foundation they built. So a lot of good lessons in terms of how do you build an organization that doesn't just make money off a trade, but actually can build structure around the good times and the bad and figure out how to survive right. market cycles, which and real estate deals with all the time. And in that case, I think there's some scar tissue, learning from scar tissue in their case on those two transactions. I mean, every real estate, there wasn't anybody left without scar tissue. Even the Everyone had black, scar Everybody tissue. went through it. So <laughs> being a part of that, and, and again, I think some of the issues with a lot of you know people in the industry right now are they've never seen a downturn. Uh, right. We've been in a, a pretty unique bull cycle for quite some time. So it's, sometimes it's easy, and this happens all the time, it's super easy to forget what went wrong and not be in a position to have experienced sort of the telltale signs to, to recognize them as they happen again. So for me, it was an interesting moment to come out to kind of see the hubris of the good, the conservatism, and sort of the thoughtfulness of the bad, and then coming out of it with really interesting investment opportunities to separate from the pack. Yeah. And let's keep in mind for our listeners, you're still a kid, right? So you're like four years out of college in these experiences, first at UBS, then Tishman, and now at Starwood. So what do you do at Starwood? How long were you there? So I was at Starwood for about a year and a half, two years. Um, They just got done raising their latest acquisition fund. So they were on the offensive. It's hard to think of anybody better in the business than Barry Sternlich in terms of being one of the most prolific real estate investors uh, Mm -hmm. of his in many generations. So being able to work with an organization like that and, and learn from him directly was really inspiring. It's interesting you mentioned Barry. One thing I think of when I think of him and having heard him speak as well often is he looks at things about another 10,000 feet 
above everything else and then has that ability to look more strategically he's, he's playing chess everybody else is playing checkers yeah uh, that's how Barry works and it's pretty thrilling to watch him work and he seems to always be on the right side of every trade but again I think that comes with not only a lot of experience but a real discipline and a real curiosity around where the world goes and why I've taken a lot of lessons learned from my experience in working with him and still apply them today and ultimately, I think what led me and actually another associate of mine who was, I was working with at the time to consider leaving to start our own thing. Uh-huh. So what happened after Starwood? So after Starwood, another associate, Jonathan Abelman, and I left together to go essentially start our own company. It wasn't necessarily uh, to start Invitation Homes, which is the single family rental uh, yeah. company I referred to. But the investment idea behind that was one of the major reasons why we'd left because we wanted to explore that. So I'd say... And having left, Jonathan and I, to your point, we were still kids. I was 28 at the time. Uh-huh. I didn't own my own home, let alone had ever bought one for investment before. Right. Uh, so we started to look at the ecosystem of investment opportunity in distressed real estate because we were confused as to why a lot of real estate shops were still underwriting the same deals. Um, right. The opportunity was kind of hitting me in the face, and I just couldn't ignore it in the sense that I wanted to figure out how to take advantage of what I thought was that massive opportunity in sort of distressed housing space. And it didn't seem like there was an opportunity for us to articulate that at Starwood. So uh, wanting to leave and go out on my own. And, and again, having seen my family members be entrepreneurs themselves and being young enough and naive enough to a certain extent to think that I could actually do it. You know, I think the older you get and as you have family, there's always like you start to like, it's easy to make the excuse of like, oh man, I can't do it now. But when you're in your late 20s, to me, it just seemed like if I leave and I succeed, great. If I leave and I fail, I can always come back. So, and, and again, to me, this is just like, this is going to be my business school. Like, it's a school of hard knocks. Like, I'm going to go teach myself how to be an entrepreneur and just take a ride. And, you know, I knew whether both professionally and personally, like, there was a safety net in the sense of, like, it's sort of an unfair advantage. But at the same time, taking that leap was a lot easier. But make no mistake, I mean, leading up to Blackstone's term sheet, I probably had... I don't know, a couple thousand bucks left in the bank. Like I was burning cash for like, you know, a year getting that thing up and running. So I got down to the wire and you have to be willing to do that. Like you have to be comfortable with that because that's what this really is at the end of the day. You, you have to be willing to risk it all. You know, everybody talks about the Great Recession, but for the most part, especially in sort of major metros, there wasn't a ton of distress in traditional asset classes. You know, office deals were still trading at pretty good cap rates, and it wasn't like the bottom had fallen out because there's still a decent amount of capital available to sort of chase some of these deals. Yes, there was distress, but it wasn't. Not the same way. Not the way that the residential space was playing out. So the housing industry was obviously in a free fall. And I would say free falls, I think, a tough word because, again, even when you look at the housing dip, it didn't fall off a cliff. It went down relatively slowly, but it's, it went down farther than it's gone in obviously quite some time. And it probably went down pretty bad for middle America, which is the place that you went up serving. It was happening everywhere. Um, so it was systemic. And to us, it was always, and, and I think, you know, I learned this from Barry, and again, I learned it at school, is, you know, what's contrarian investment? And how do you think about recognizing value where other people don't? And when we looked at the single family housing space, we saw a massive amount of distress, but nobody really coming up with a, a way to articulate that strategy. So we set about building essentially a pitch deck and a business plan 
to institutionalize the single family rental industry by aggregating what we thought was an opportunity to aggregate thousands of homes quickly and build an organization that could ultimately fix them up and rent them out and build sort of an institutional property management platform. Again, you know, being 28 and my partner the same age, we needed to sort of bring some additional expertise to the table to make our pitch credible and show to an investor that would be interesting in pursuing that strategy that we had some experience in sort of articulating it at some point. So we scoured the country looking for what ultimately would hope to be an institutional SFR operator. Unfortunately, there was no data and there was nobody institutional that existed. We just so happened to stumble upon a group out of Phoenix, Arizona called the Treehouse Group. Dallas Tanner, Marcus Ridgway, and Tom Stapley were principals of and they had bought and were currently managing around a thousand single-family rental homes in the Phoenix area. We sort of gave them our pitch that we wanted to take their smaller regional business and build a national concern and convince a large private equity organization to back us to go take that business model and expand it. Uh-huh. So after the Treehouse Group guys, there was five of us then. I'd say Jonathan and I bringing more of the private equity institutional experience to kind of build a business plan to sort of institutionalize a local player, Treehouse, who had been, again, operating an SFR company and doing it really well, but lacking the scale to take advantage of it nationally. And I think what we were missing then was also good gray hair, because again, the Treehouse guys were were pretty young as well. And then, you know, sort of a property management organization that we could essentially incubate out of to allow us to enter every market yesterday, because we thought that this opportunity needed Mm -hmm. to occur nationally and we didn't want to sort of organically grow out of one specific region Uh, we wanted to show a large institutional investor that we could essentially rubber stamp this thing across the country quickly so we looked at essentially the largest multifamily property managers because there were no you know institutional sfr managers it was graystone and then riverstone residential Uh, we couldn't get a hold of graystone we got a hold of of riverstone their two founders uh, and owners Peter and Nick Gould, and they were sort of thinking about a similar strategy. We met, we thought it was a perfect match, and we combined our efforts and then went pitching. Uh, and, and that brought Blackstone. And then we eventually convinced Blackstone. So it's interesting. So we've had this conversation on the podcast a few times because Fred Tawami, who became at one point president of Invitation Homes, has been a guest, and he's a long-term friend. And Colin Wheel, also, who went up a different version of this, that also came into the same company. Ultimately, he was also a guest on the podcast. So we've talked about this. And one thing I'm curious about is how much was this vision of we can create an institutional company of scale forever versus single families cheap, we can buy it and get out of it? It was always under the guise of building a long-term business. I think anybody investing in that space early on could have easily used the fix and flip as like a as sort of a lifeline to be like, you guys, worst case. Yeah, worst case scenario, you just sell a bunch of homes. But I think Blackstone was interested in building a platform. Like, they're platform builders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're interested in deploying significant amounts of capital. And so we had to convince them that we could do this, do it well, do it efficiently, do it at sort of in the same margins as a vertically stacked, efficient multifamily asset. But, you know, sort of overcome the challenges of large geographic distribution of the homes that we were purchasing in some of these major markets across the U.S. So... For them, and I think what made them unique, and I think what also is, I think, pretty telling for how the real estate industry is evolving is that 
you know, Blackstone's ability to recognize this opportunity wasn't just premised on recognizing distressed real estate opportunity. Everybody saw that. What made them different from their competitors is that they made a bet on leveraging technology to put it to work. That's what allowed us to scale the business as quickly as we did and as efficiently as we did and build a profitable going concern was that we really leveraged technology to do that. Uh-huh. It's interesting, the conversation with Fred Tuami, who I knew when he was leveraging technology at Equity Residential to almost, this is an exaggeration, but not really, to help create the same efficiency in the multifamily business that hadn't yet existed. It took a mom and pop business in multifamily to a big national business with institutional capability. And then you end up bringing the same thing here. Couldn't have happened if multifamily hadn't already done that. Yeah, we definitely took lessons learned from multifamily. But again, there were some problems that multifamily doesn't have to deal with that we do. Especially you had to go well behind. With geographic disparate properties across large geographic regions, sort of the efficiency of logistics and people and underwriting, especially as it relates to we were buying right. at auction and foreclosure, not large GSE data tapes. We had to be a very nimble, fast-moving, and technology-driven organization. So everyone has a role on a team like that making it happen. And maybe getting Blackstone in was part of your role, but then I think you were the technology guy. Yes. You hadn't been a technologist no. before, no. so talk about that. When we first got started, again, scaling this business not only quickly but responsibly was core because I didn't want this to be a trade. I wanted it to be a long-term going concern. And I wanted to show Blackstone that we were building a foundation with which they could be confident that they'd have a company that would be real at the end of the day. So very early on in the process, I recognized a lot of ways that we could use technology to just make our jobs more efficient. And because I had a banking background, a lot of the early work I was doing was building incredibly large Excel models, like helping underwrite and manage the portfolio of all the homes that we bought. But as you can imagine, buying thousands of homes, that becomes pretty unruly pretty quickly. And while most organizations can rely on Excel in this situation, there was too much data. And we were trying to approach it a lot more, I'd say, nimbly. That really required us to build a more flexible technology stack to scale the business and create efficiencies that just hadn't existed before. So I sort of took it upon myself to become the technology leader, leveraging sort of a lot of smart people and a lot of organizations that wanted to get into this space. So it was less about me knowing how to code and more about me knowing how to put the right people in the right spots mm-hmm. uh, and bring the right partners to help make it happen. So, and let's play with that for a minute. So technology leader doesn't mean technology geek. That means business person understanding the capability, opening your mind, knowing the need to get there and figure it out. 100%. I mean, it can be helpful to have the context for, by having a technology background, but To be a real, I think, technology leader, especially at a real estate organization, if you don't understand the process that you're technologizing, it's going to be hard ultimately build it, but more importantly, innovate on it. Uh So I'm going to go back to different questions, which will sound silly. I'm an old guy, so I'm 63. And so I think of the history of real estate all the time. And I'm still realizing here that you're about 30 years old by now in this story that you're telling. Yes. And you had a couple years at Starwood. You had a couple years at Tishman Spire. So to me, you're a kid, right? But I think you grew up in a real estate family. So you're actually a kid with 10 years of background or listening or 20 years of background before you got into the industry. And I think those things that you heard get into your body so that you're twice as mature in an industry as you would be otherwise as a 30-year-old. Am I making that up or do you think that has some reality to it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, I think by having an interest early on and taking the time personally to sort of understand, learn and experience it and then 
you know, having the mentors to guide you through that and, and really put you in a position to focus on the most important things. Because anybody can just float through a career. But when you have people who are telling you, hey, here are the things that if when you are at UBS, when you are at Tishman, focus on building this skill set or building these types of relationships. When you have that context, I think you can be way more efficient. And for anybody that's ever worked in banking or private equity, it's like dog years. I mean, uh-huh. I wasn't working, you know, nine to five. I was working seven till midnight for years. I wouldn't recommend that, uh-huh. but I was drinking from a fire hose. So I think I was more mature in my career than I probably otherwise would have been uh, in any other. I haven't had the experience that I had. But again, like with any startup or any company, where there's a will, there's a way. If you're willing to put in the time, have the humility to understand what you're good at, but also what you're not good at, and surround yourself with smart people, and then, my God, there's nobody smarter than Blackstone, you can do some pretty incredible things. And smart people like that pull you up to demand and synergize you to get to that other place. I wanted to be in the boardroom with John Gray, who at the time was leading Blackstone's real estate organization. That, to me, was... That's like hanging out with Mick Jagger. Uh Um, So you want to step up uh, and you want to prove yourself in that situation. Yeah. So get to the end game on Invitation Homes and your end game there. Just, you know, play that out to the rest and then we'll talk about fifth wall. Yeah. I mean, the end game there was, again, really about building a going concern and positioning it to take it public, which we ultimately did. We took it public in 2017. Uh-huh. Being a part of that was pretty incredible. Being able to you know, go to exchange and, and ring the bell and do all that stuff was, it was definitely a, a dream come true. The initial founders were sort of presented with the opportunity to stay on and be a public company executive uh-huh. or take the opportunity to sort of move on and, and try some new stuff. I took the option to sort of move on and not continue on you know, past the IPO, mainly premised on the fact that I, I started to see sort of this white space and uh-huh. the convergence between real estate and tech having been a part of building Invitation Homes technology stack and seeing what can happen when real estate and technology collide and collide at scale. Right. I just felt sort of compelled to go try to start another company to take advantage of that unique situation. Uh-huh. And it goes back to my point before, right? When we were looking at Invitation Homes and we, we were looking at sort of the yields you could achieve by buying distressed single-family homes, it was so obvious to us that there was a business there that, that I had to build a company. It wasn't like I'm passionate about single-family rental property management, but I, was, I knew there was a massive business to be built there, so I pursued it. Similar to Fifth Wall, I think more of my passion came in in this one because uh-huh. there's nothing cooler than if I were to sort of 10 years ago tell me, like, what's your perfect job? Like, what I'm doing now would have been my uh-huh. perfect job. But I just saw, again, this white space where it's like, hey, there aren't any general VC funds focused on real estate tech in particular. None of the GPs in these firms have ever worked in real estate before, so they lacked the context and the relationships and this is the biggest industry on earth. And as technology ceases to sort of exist as an industry unto itself and starts to reflect the industries that it serves, right. this should be one of the biggest industries. Prop tech or real estate tech or built world tech should be one of the biggest categories of investment in the future. So I felt compelled to go figure out how to take advantage of that. Fair deal. And also, I'm going back to an earlier comment in the conversation at Harvard where you didn't join Zuckerberg and his crew <laughs> and you went into investment banking instead. And I heard a little woe was me about not having joined him and having the yacht, but then you rang the bell 10 years later anyhow. Yeah. And again, I think you know, being a part of that, and again, I'm, I, I tell that more of, as an anecdote and a joke as opposed to like Mark was like pounding the table, Brad, come join me. That's not of course. the story. But you know, seeing guys like him, but others be successful in their careers and whether it be in business or in art or you know, even like someone like my wife, who's a principal dancer at San Francisco Ballet, watching people 
achieve sort of the highest parts of their career uh, is inspiring and you want to do the same thing. Absolutely. Okay. So you see this opportunity in real estate and it, it's also interesting when you say that it's the largest industry in the world, but under teched. And Colony just made the same bet, right? Just like three, four weeks ago, he said, okay, I'm going to sell my real estate and let's go into prop tech. There's better returns there. Well, yeah. Well, I think the big thesis for Colony is more along the lines of betting on real estate that is enabled by tech. So like Uh data setters and Uh those types of things for sure. So yeah, listen, I think this is a tidal wave that's not slowing down. And again, every industry is faced with this right now. and, and, And I think... Innovation is going to be a core part of any Fortune 500 company in the future. So figuring out how to build the internal capabilities to take advantage of this is, I think, crucial for any business today. Cool. Okay, so talk to us about your co-founding this group. Talk about, maybe was Blackstone one of the early investors? So talk about pulling this company together sure. and then going and finding investor base. So Blackstone was actually the reason why Brennan, my co-founder, uh, actually met. So I was helping Blackstone kind of think through some of their own technology opportunities at some of their other portfolio companies. Brendan at the time was was sort of doing a similar exercise. You know, we were encouraging Blackstone to think a little bit more aggressively about potentially building their own venture capital organization to take advantage of their large Uh uh, and growing AUM and expansive number of portfolio companies. They essentially said, hey, you guys are literally saying the same thing. Why don't you get together and talk because there might be something there. So Brennan and I decided to meet up and we had breakfast in San Francisco, realized very quickly that we viewed the world very similarly, and very quickly after that decided to start the process of building a company together, which was a process having built a company, you know, sort of the first time and Brennan having done it twice before, we really had a very clear-eyed understanding of what it meant to partner with somebody and how uh-huh. important that partnership really was. Uh-huh. So we took a lot of time getting to know each other. We essentially treated each other as strangers and interviewed friends and family. We went on essentially a week-long sabbatical where we put ourselves in a position to spend pretty much every waking hour together for a week straight to see <laughs> if we could actually handle. Uh, where, where did you do this? this is we the- went up to Tahoe and just spent a week, you know, hanging out together. So it was that kind of rigor around, you know, making sure we were the right, right. partners, which I think set us up for a lot of success. Cause I think Brendan and I have very similar, but also distinct skill sets that are very complementary. And uh-huh. I think the work that we did leading up to founding the company, I think put us in a position to grow. Cause now we're at the size and scale where we're sort of doing different parts of the business and there needs to be inherent trust there. And we've got that. And I think it makes us really effective uh-huh. team. It's interesting. We've now done 60 some odd interviews for leading voices and uh, probably four or five examples of partners running businesses. And there's a great benefit to two people, two heads working through stuff like that. Other people say it's crazy. It doesn't work. Yeah. But I think it matters a whole lot. It does. And venture, I think obviously partnerships are, are pretty common. But again, I think what we're building is, again, I think evolving the venture model and it's starting to you know, reflect some other different verticals and, and business models. And I think by having two people with, again, like I said, two very complementary skill sets, you can just do a lot more faster. So it is a competitive advantage for us and we'll continue to remain so. And you know, I think we've really built the culture of the firm to reflect uh-huh. that as well. And the people that we've hired who are incredible, I think, you know, have the same values and sort of reflect uh-huh. the same cultural imperative, which I think, again, 
everybody that we hire are like five tool athletes. They can do right. pretty much everything. So it's been fun. So how many that. people work? I want to say the word here. How many people work here? But you work here where we're sitting. But how our, many in the company? Yeah, we're headquartered in L.A. So everybody's uh-huh. in L.A. So we've got about uh, 30, I think 34 people now. Uh-huh. So we've scaled pretty okay. aggressively. 34 people. How much money have you raised from how many investors? And then how many investments? And then drill down on three or four investments just so we can know what they are. And then we're going to have to wrap up. But yeah, sure. When you hear about the business. So we got about a billion dollars of AUM. We've invested, I think, in over you know 35 some odd companies. And that global expansion as we went from fund one to fund two was super important. A lot of our LPs have global portfolios. But more importantly, prop tech, real estate, built world innovation isn't just occurring here in the U.S. It's occurring globally. Yep. And we really felt like we needed to have our finger on the pulse of that innovation. And the good news is that an office owner in the U.S. is having the same issues that an office owner in Europe is having. So there's a lot of economies of scale as, as it relates to not only technologies, but the advice that you can give. So we've really created that global consortium that at this point with 55 partners is going to be really hard to replicate. I'm really pride ourselves in sort of having built that ecosystem and that trust to ultimately execute on that, which is, I think, really important. And how much we started in this conversation, but I am curious, what's the level of engagement with your investors, not as investors, but as we're together figuring out the future real estate? Very high. So we have a team of, I think it's close to 10 now, you know, people who are exclusively focused on providing advisory services to our LPs. Uh-huh. And that is a very intimate engagement where we really work closely with our corporate partners to help them think through their future innovation priorities and then help them ultimately execute on those by giving them access not only to the early stage VC-backed sort of technology ecosystem and Uh the entrepreneurs that run those companies, but also sort of the rigor of the change management and internal innovation capabilities that come with guys like KC and women like Sarah, who we hired, who are former McKinsey folks who uh-huh. have many, many years experience of leading you know, multinational transformation so efforts. 10 of your, you said 35 employees? Yeah, I think eight or or on that side. Yeah, or on that side. And yeah. give an example of, and you don't have to call out a name of a company if it's awkward, but give an example of you go into the company and help them think about this, make that real, like place the company in a sector or... Sure. I mean, we've done work with Maceric, who's the third largest shopping mall owner in the U.S., to help them think through not only the technology that affects the physical plant of their retail space, but more importantly, sort of the digitally native brands that are now cropped up online that are now for the first time looking to move online uh, to offline Uh uh, and providing them the access and expertise to build internal capabilities to take advantage of of that omni-channel evolution and being a real leader in that space to take advantage of it. Groups like Heinz, who we've worked with on their flexible workspace strategy, running a large-scale RFP that's been well-reported to partner them with both Industrious and Convene to help launch their sort of internally branded Heinz squared flexible workspace strategy. Groups like Lennar, who have been one of the more, I'd say, thoughtful investors in sort of the VC ecosystem and building the internal capabilities to completely redefine and reimagine their business and, and leverage technology and technologies unique and interesting ways. They've invested alongside us and put to great use companies like Open Door and Hippo and States Title and Notarize to redefine and blend to redefine significant parts of their business in really compelling ways that I think are starting to really set them apart not just in sort of the home building industry, but in the broader context of not just real estate, but any corporate innovation uh, as to how to essentially tap into the 
billions of dollars of essentially free R&D that the VC ecosystem provides and rendered available for their corporation. Right. So let's drill down on two of those points. So one is you can bring along one of your investors, strategic investors, and they may sidecar or also themselves then deep dive invest in one of the platforms that fits their business. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's the benefit of both being a investor, but also an advisor, because I think the problem with if you're just an investor or just a VC fund, if you're running, let's say, a strategic initiative with a corporate LP around, let's say, access control, uh-huh. and you realize during that RFP process that there aren't really venture returns associated with investing in an access control company. So as a VC firm in that situation, you have to abandon that project the minute you determine that, because the management fees that you're being paid are to make return for the fund. And if there's not a VNC investment, you can't waste your time bringing that essentially RFP or that strategic initiative to fruition because you're not getting paid to do that. But with an advisory component to our business that complements it, that advisory team can see that RFP all the way through and make the best decision for the corporate LP, whether it's VC backable or not, to leverage and utilize the best technology solution. And like being able to do that and do it clear-eyed and not be influenced by sort of the venture side of the business. There are technology companies that are fine, that will survive, and that will be great, that make great commercial partnerships that will add massive strategic value for our corporate LPs. So it's really about navigating the landscape of all those different opportunities and, and having the platform that can take advantage of all of them. And that's really what we do. And again, in that exercise, you are mining asymmetric information about the market and the players and the corporate LPs. There's really interesting information that you can trade on there and in the hopes that there are going to be significant sort of engagements that will result in in really interesting VC outcomes where you can leverage your sort of unique position in the market to negotiate better terms, to access companies more opportunistically, to structure better deals. All that stuff we're capable of doing, but we want to be able to provide a full plate of services so that our LPs can take advantage of every opportunity at any stage of innovation. Uh So talk about a couple of investments you're especially proud of and that are interesting that our listeners may not know about. Yeah, I mean, I think in our first fund, we've had a a lot of really compelling investments. You know, some of the latest ones that have raised rounds that are probably more well-known, groups like VTS that are essentially, I think, innovating the leasing uh, and portfolio management uh, piece of real estate and now leveraging their unique position in the market and having captured a massive portion of sort of institutional office landlords building really compelling data products and a new product called Truvia, which is going to help build essentially a marketplace to allow sort of companies in the office space to transact with their tenants in smaller square foot space directly. So those sort of consolidation plays where you pick a software provider that is really uniquely positioned to be sort of the spinal cord of a specific industry. VTS really reflects that. Hippo, who I'm actually going to see right after this, who recently raised around is sort of redefining home insurance and creating products that are obviously sort of custom made to, to suit the specific consumer and ultimately real estate owner needs to sort of underwrite and provide cheaper and more comprehensive policies faster and digitally online. Open Door is another one that's based here, which I think is pretty well known. Eric and his team have built a really compelling model that essentially represents a liquidity marketplace for housing, allowing you to go online, type in your address, and get an instant quote. That solves a whole host of issues as it relates to the home builder industry. Most people 
can't buy a new home or choose not to because they can't get out of the equity in their existing one. And now they have a platform to provide more transparency and more liquidity and Open Door's making that experience digitally native and much more pleasant. I think the three most stressful things you can do in life are buy a home, death in the family, and public speaking. So I think Open Door is working to get that, uh-huh. that buy a home piece off that list. And they're doing it in partnership with groups like Lennar uh-huh. uh, and Pulte and others to kind of reimagine what it means to engage in the home buying ecosystem. Uh-huh. What are you able to do? We're, we're sitting here in San Francisco today. There's fires 30 miles north of us. They're going to keep going on. We have sea level rise. What do you do in your business about kind of resiliency, environmental stuff? Is that And that is clearly part of the future of real estate is figuring out how to deal with it. There's an interesting story. And I think now that I mentioned Hippo, it's actually pretty timely. So Hippo being a home insurance company during the last round of fires here in California, you know, sort of had exposure to some of those areas, not a significant amount, but enough to warrant sort of an engagement and they leveraging their pretty comprehensive technology stack, which includes a whole host of things around monitoring weather anomalies, was tracking the progress Uh of the fire. And based on that technology, they were able to call and warn and put people in temporary housing quickly. So you usually don't expect your insurance company to call you and say, hey, the fire's headed your way. You need to get out of there. And by the way, we booked you a hotel room that's in a safe area. Oh, and then if the house did burn down, they had already known that and they pre-filed your policy. So that experience versus what's traditional is just so far and away better. And again, enabled by the technology that they built, it just goes to show that you can purpose built a lot of the parts of the more traditional ecosystem to not only provide a better and more efficient insurance policy, but more importantly, a better customer service. That is really what insurance ultimately is all about. Um, That was like a great example of now a company leveraging their position to make terrible situations better. Uh Um, But to the specific question around environmental, ESG is going to be a big, big component to real estate investing moving forward. It's been proven now, we've looked at the data, that there is a real benefit to having a strategy there. Public stocks trade higher, investors give you credit. Ultimately, at the end of the day, considering the fact that real estate is one of the more prolific energy users, I think in the U.S., Real estate consumes, I think, 70% of all electricity. It's really our responsibility as an industry to, I think, proactively combat this. And, uh-huh. you know, there's plenty of legislation that's coming down the docket that's going to force the issue. But I think there's, you're going to see a lot more real estate organizations and the technologies that support that take a much more proactive approach to being viewed as a steward of improving the situation, not making it worse. Uh-huh. And are there any magical bullets in your companies that you're funding that either look at, you know, resiliency around sea level rise or energy use. Yeah, energy use is easier. We have companies like Enertiv and Aquacore who work to make sort of energy efficiency more effective at the asset level. We have companies like Blueprint who are looking to sort of redefine and reimagine what it means for the real estate industry to actually move away from a consumer of energy and actually to being a provider of it uh, by networking into the energy grid and leveraging some of the innovation around energy assets to actually become power plants themselves. So yeah, there's a lot of different companies within our portfolio companies that are tackling this problem head on. I wouldn't say there's a silver bullet that solves all of it. Uh, A lot of it's going to be piecemeal, but these are really smart entrepreneurs with really interesting ideas. And the engagement that we've seen with the the real estate community has been really positive and I think will only continue. Actually, the answer is piecemeal, right? It's everything we do has to change. Everything we do has to change. Blow my mind with something that's a trend in the business or blow our listeners' mind with something that's 
coming that we may not be thinking about? You get to see it. Um, yeah, there's so many of those. One that I think is interesting and people may not be really thinking about is autonomy. And I don't want to say autonomous vehicles because that's not going to blow anybody's mind. Everybody's focused on that. I personally think that the proliferation and potentially mass adoption of autonomous vehicles has the potential to create and destroy more real estate value than we've ever seen. However, I think that I am I'm a, I'm a little bit more bearish on when that's going to happen. I think that's actually going to take a lot longer than people think. But what I think is actually maybe more proactive, maybe not, is that I actually think that you are going to see autonomy around aerial transportation actually take hold faster and potentially influence real estate in a more dynamic way, just because the confines of infrastructure that help support obviously vehicles is much more confined, much more expensive, and much more regulated potentially than the air above us. Obviously, there's big problems that need to be solved. But when you think about what it means to move in and out of city locations, leveraging air transportation, it's much easier and you can get much farther in a more efficient manner. So I think there's, whether it's autonomy or more cheap ways to travel airily, I think are going to actually influence real estate. And are you talking about people? People. Moving or people stuff? And people or Both. stuff? People Both. and things. Yeah. I think people aren't paying enough credence to what can happen above us. And I think that can happen faster. Uh-huh. We are the Jetsons. Last question always on the podcast is if you got five minutes with a young person planning a career in real estate, what would your advice be? I think this is the most unique time to be planning a career in real estate. There is a significant hole of expertise that does not exist today. And I see it every day because we have to train our people. I can't just hire them. And what I'm referring to specifically is sort of real estate professionals that have a real understanding and real background in merging and sort of leveraging this convergence between real estate and technology. So figuring out how to position your career to gain experience in both is going to, I think, position you to have unlimited optionality as it relates to taking advantage of what I think is going to be, again, a significant movement and evolution of both the real estate and the technology industry colliding and colliding at scale. So I think today, to my point before, is make sure you have the institutional know-how and spend the time really understanding the sort of nuts and bolts of the industry, but always challenge yourself to think about how technology is going to influence that and position yourself to take on challenges or work for organizations that are leveraging technology in ways that are redefining this space. So I think this is actually the most exciting time to be getting into this industry because I think it's evolving and it's evolving quickly. And I think the younger generation now that's coming out is actually better suited to sort of structure their career to take advantage of it. Yeah, and the built world is not going to go away. The built world's not going anywhere, (laughs) no. The lines are blurring and it's getting bigger. Absolutely true. Hey, Brad, thank you very much. This is a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.